Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Sean, I have uh, I have five pounds in my pocket, five euro, whatever, whatever uh, your denomination of choice is. Five, five bucks, dollars, five dollars. Five bucks. And what are you and, gonna do uh, with it? I'm gonna buy something. What? Your privacy. Oh, I think it's uh, <laughs> it's already sold out. It's already <laughs> sold. We've, we've exhausted the limitation. Marco identity think. is gone. Last time I checked on Google and social media, I think they already they already bought it from me. Actually, I you know they didn't even buy it from me; they just took it. They didn't realize you. it. Yeah, it slipped away. <laughs> so there you go. There's <laughs> nothing for you to buy. That's right. Just just enter it here. Yeah. All right. So I'll take my five pounds elsewhere then. But uh, buy an ice cream, a good gelato. Buy an ice cream. Yeah. Which I just shared some privacy that I <laughs> like ice cream. There you go. All right. Now you're going to see a lot of advertisement the next time you log into Instagram <laughs> and right. it's going to be all ice cream all over the places. Exactly. The, now, the seriously, using. this is a good timing for this conversation, Sean, because um, there's something that we have been doing for a few years now around this, this period. And uh, you actually moderated uh, several panels with uh, for uh, Privacy Day, which now is Privacy Week. And, exactly. uh, yep. and uh, yeah. maybe led, led by the, the good folks over at National Cybersecurity Awareness, uh, NCSA, here in the U.S. And, uh, yeah, I mean, lots of lots of discussions around privacy in terms of user information, business information, what's acceptable use, what's appropriate, what's ethical, what's legal, uh, many different facets to to cover here. Yep. And uh, what do you think, Marco? What are we going to talk about today? I think we're going to talk about privacy, and uh, and is a book that uh, Dr. Carissa Vellis wrote. She's our guest, which is going to introduce herself really soon. But I just want to highlight that the title is "Privacy is Power: How to Take Back Control of Your Data." And who doesn't want to know that? So, uh, maybe that's what I'll use my five bucks for. Yeah, buy the book. I don't think it's going to be enough, but you know, maybe some credit on Amazon. You'll catch you that. Absolutely. But 
this is a very relevant conversation. It's probably never ending. Is regarding technology, how we use it, how it's used against us and for us. We're not going to be catastrophic and dystopian, but uh, you know, this this time we're going to look at a problem and maybe maybe at a solution too. So, Sean, what do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Carissa, it, it's a pleasure to meet you and uh, to have you on the show. Uh, congratulations on the, the release of the book. Uh, it's available in paperback as also, also hardback, I think, is available last year. Uh, a bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, what you're up to, and, and we'll get into uh, how the book came to be. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Sean and Marco. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm an associate professor in philosophy at the Institute for Ethics in AI at the University of Oxford. And I work on privacy, but also digital ethics more generally uh, with us focus on AI ethics. And that's already a, a panel series that we could have with you <laughs> talking about all these things. And uh, and by the way, we do have some panels and maybe, maybe we'll invite you to be part of. So big topic, very big topic, always in the news, either social media apps and, uh, and, and the way that we just uh, trade our privacy without, without even knowing. Because if I'm understanding well, the book is it's more about the everyday people that use technology than, than the commercial or the cybersecurity crowd. So tell us a little bit about the book, why you wrote it, what made you click like, hey, there is a lot of book about privacy, but maybe this is missing. So what, what, what was the why? I was a PhD student in Oxford working on a completely different topic. And then I started researching the history of my family who were Spanish refugees. And I dug up a lot of information that they hadn't told us. And that made me wonder whether I had a right to know those things. And being a philosopher, I looked into the philosophy of privacy and realized there wasn't much there. And the little there was, was quite outdated. And then that same summer, Snowden came out with his revelations that we were being surveilled at a mass scale. And, and I just thought it's incredible that philosophy hasn't said enough about this. And, you know, we have like great names like Rawls and um, talking about justice and how come there's nobody talking about privacy? So I changed the topic of my dissertation and I worked on that for, for years. And originally the project was to write an academic book about privacy, but I was thinking that we are at such an important time historically, so much is at stake at the moment and we are making decisions that will change how we live in the next few decades. That I thought that it, maybe it was a bad idea to write an academic book that only very few people would read. And I wanted to write the book that I wish I had been able to read when I started getting nervous about these issues or, or uninterested. And especially thinking about two kinds of people. One, um, a person who doesn't know much about privacy and is just generally interested as anybody would be because we all use tech and we're all citizens and so on. But also people who are especially skeptic, skeptics about whether privacy is important. People who might think, well, you know, I'm not a criminal. I'm not very shy. Um, why should I protect my, my data? So I wanted to have a big picture book on the one hand, something that explains the relationship between privacy and power, which is why I think privacy is most important, uh, but also a very practical book that could offer solutions for both policymakers, but also just ordinary individuals going about their daily lives. 
so I, I believe you talk about uh, the the economy of data or the economy of privacy, and I'm wondering if you can kind of share with us your your view of this world. I know that data is required in order for businesses to uh, make better decisions and and serve their customers better. But how, how have we reached this point where privacy is really data is the, the new oil, right? And I guess what I'm really getting to is there, there are companies who use people's information and people maybe unknowingly or, or blindly give over the information to help the, help the business grow. And I, I immediately look to things like tobacco or alcohol where somebody takes advantage of a product, not knowing what the side effects would be. And I'm just wondering if you have any, any views of the economy of data, privacy, and maybe some analogies to markets or, or sectors like the ones I described. Yeah, I think it was a combination of things um, regarding how we got here. On the one hand, we got here because there were some startup companies, uh, famously Google, who was very successful in what it did. It had a fantastic algorithm. People loved um, its product, but it didn't have a way to fund itself. And after a while, investors were getting impatient and, and, and they were quite desperate to find a business model. So even though the founders of Google had once written a paper in which they criticized search engines that depended on ads, they ended up um, doing just that because they, they couldn't come up with anything better, essentially. But it, they came up not only with ads in general, but, but personalized ads. They realized that they could use the data that they had on their users to, to target those ads. And that kind of kicked off the data economy, the Federal Trade Commission recommended to Congress that it regulate privacy or personal data along some of the lines that we see in the GDPR in Europe, things like people should know what kind of data is being collected on them, they should be able to access it, to um, change it, to delete it, etc. But when after 9-11, the government in the United States wanted to do anything and everything possible to avoid something like that happening again. And they thought it might be a good idea to keep all that data, to literally make a copy of that data and use it for safety. Now, unfortunately, it turns out that big data is not that great to um, to detect terrorism because big data is fantastic at detecting um, patterns when you have troves and troves of data, but terrorism is always going to be a very rare thing. And so unfortunately, it seems like we lost our privacy for nothing. First, because personalized ads are have ver very serious disadvantages and the advantages that they have, we could get in less invasive ways like contextual ads, which means that if you search online for whatever you want to buy, say you want to buy a book, and then we can show you the ad for that book. We don't need to know, you know your sexual orientation, your political tendencies and, and many other sensitive things that gets gets shared in the data economy. And secondly, because we gave away our privacy uh, in the hopes that it would bring us more, more safety and it doesn't seem like it has done that. And in some ways, having that much personal data sloshing around makes us very unsafe, uh, both as citizens, but also as whole countries. So you mentioned a company that their original motto was don't be evil. And then it turned out that now they don't even have that anymore. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're evil by 
by choice but you know again as you said you know that, that that's the business and 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 it's ruled by money and and it just became the way the internet works because it's so easy to get this data so we have many conversation about privacy and, and one thing that we that we hear a lot is the problem that even if you have the gdpr even if you have regulation once the toothpaste is out of the tube it's not going to go back in there. How many times are they going to steal your data once it's already out there? So, I can buy I, your I can buy your data. You're in your privacy, Marco. Uh, yeah, is, unless is I change. Sque- it's just squeezed out on the on the floor. That's all. <laughs> I just changed completely my personality, and and I go in a completely different place. And the data that I gave you are not good anymore. But <laughs> the point here that I want to make is when you when you look at privacy now. Many people say, uh, well, privacy has changed. What's your take on that from a philosophical perspective? Is it really change? Is it a changing thing with culture and society? Or we're just trying to justify the fact that we screwed up? (laughs) I think we're just trying to justify the fact that we screwed up. Um, And before that, I think tech companies were trying to peddle a story about privacy that was very convenient to them. It's just something cultural and it has changed and people don't have no reason to to protect their privacy. But privacy has always been important for the same reasons. We seek privacy to protect ourselves from others, from both abuses of power and kind of encroachment of others. So you seek privacy when you're feeling vulnerable, when you're doing something that you don't want other people to know about because they could misuse it against you. Um, And in that way, the relationship between privacy and power is very, very old. That's why somebody like Francis Bacon said that, you know, the more knowledge you have about somebody, the more power you have over them. And then Michel Foucault said that that the more power, um, sorry, yeah, the more power you have, you also have more knowledge, not not only in the sense that power gains you access to knowledge, but also you get to decide what counts as knowledge. So Google gets to decide what counts as knowledge about you because it categorizes you and it sells and, and shares that data in, in different ways. Um, so I think that privacy has always been important. And today, if anything, it's more important than ever because what has changed is that we have tools to collect more data than ever before in history and to analyze that data and make inferences that weren't possible before. So that has changed, uh, but not why privacy is, is important. And I want to talk about this, uh, the, the concept of power, because Marco pointed to the, the, um, the economical drivers here, where if you have shareholders you're answering to, you have to make money so that they can make money. Um, but even, even those big, large behemoth organizations reach a point where governments get involved and say, you know, you're just doing a little too much. You're crossing the line here. And so there's that angle. And then also governments aren't innocent themselves either. (laughs) So they can presumably tap into some of those data sets that these big companies have either knowingly or unknowingly. And then obviously they have their own data sets. So how, how do we as people, citizens within or even visiting other places around the world know what's being used from us for good or evil? 
That's one of the problems that the whole data economy is absolutely opaque. And partly that's because data is very abstract. So it doesn't feel like anything to have your data collected. It's not like having your blood drawn, you know, you, you notice that. Um, but with data, you don't miss anything. It's not until the bad consequences hit you. And even then you might not know why it happened. So say you get denied a loan or you get rejected from a job, you're never going to make the connection that that was because a year ago you gave this data that got sold to a data broker and then to your prospective employer. Um, so it's very hard to make the connection. And you write about governments. Governments benefit from data in, in many ways, but a few ways that are important is some governments even sell data. <laughs> um, so for instance, there have been stories about um, the US Postal Office sharing data which is quite sensitive, uh, but also for, for national security purposes and for the control of the population. And of course, the government needs some amount of data, for instance, to make sure that people are paying taxes and so on. And of course, um, to pursue serious criminal char uh, charges, etc. cetera. Um, but at the same time, now we're seeing that governments also have a reason to protect personal data. Again, for a variety of reasons. One is that um, personal data is being used to erode democracy, to pit us against one another and to expose us to personalized propaganda and try to sway elections. And of course, that is very, very threatening to any society. And the second thing is that personal data is very dangerous for national security. Uh, so for instance, a couple of years ago, the New York Times published a piece in which two journalists who described themselves as not very tech savvy got data that anyone can buy from a data broker on the location of 12 million Americans. And they managed to identify very important lawyers, very important people in the military, very important public officials. And these people were going to places that are very sensitive, like uh, drug clinics or uh, abortion clinics or psychiatrist office. And if you have that access, it's very easy to, for example, extort someone or to um, for, for somebody to be a physical threat. And, and these reporters even managed to get the location of the president of the United States by triangulating his schedule to a phone that was always around and it turned out it was the phone of a secret service agent. And if the president of the United States is not safe, then nobody's safe and, and the whole country isn't safe. Yeah, fun stuff. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder who's triangulating me. That's that's Mark. I know you want to go, but no, no, uh, go go. I think the 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 obvious question for most people is, well, I'm not the president. I have nothing of value. Nobody's coming after me. Got nothing not, to hide. Target. I have nothing to hide. I'm not. Uh, I'm not breaching any steps on any uh, interesting buildings. Um. So why why do I care? I guess is the big question. I don't know, Marco, if you had anything else to follow up on. No, I, I'd say I, I love that you went there because this is exactly where, where the question I want to ask to Carissa, which is this this channel on ITSP Magazine is called Redefining Society. And, and this is something that is not just, you know, expert to listen to this, but also more and more everyday people interested in technology and, and, and privacy. So one of the things I was reading in the excerpt of your book is, you know, you mentioned since the day you wake up in the morning, you're already leaking data and information, right? You check your 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 social media and, and, and so forth. And uh, maybe you're up with the location open that just to check the weather. 
and there you are. Uh, here's where I am, and I'm in the mountain today instead of where I usually am. So show me target advertising for that. So can you paint a quick picture of the everyday citizen? Like, you know, a few examples of where, where are these data leaking and you, they don't even know. Yeah, it's quite scary. So the moment you wake up, actually during the night, your phone is sending data and it sends it during the night because most people plug in their phones and so that you, you don't notice that your battery is being drained. It's just quite sneaky or it, it kind of gives you a feel for, for the kind of practices uh, we can find in this area. And as soon as you wake up, uh, all the apps in your phone and your phone manufacturer and um, your um, phone provider realize that you've woken up and all kinds of inferences can be made like are you are you sleeping too little are you not sleeping well are you looking for things at night you know am i going to pay my loan that kind of thing and um, then if you have a smart car your car is not only tracking your location and your music for instance um there are some data companies that are trying to infer things from music taste, not only about your personality, but also about whether you might be going through a rough patch, maybe you're depressed, and who knows how that data can be used. Um, it's also tracking, your car is also tracking your weight, which is something that really shocked me. Maybe it's not like a, a, yeah, a big thing, but it's, it, it's, it's shocking that the seat in your car is tracking your weight without you knowing. And of course, that information can be interesting for an insurance company. Are you losing weight? Are you gain gaining weight? Um, when you go into a store, you might be tracked with facial recognition. You might um, be tracked as you go in, in the store and, and, and where do you stop and what ca catches your attention. You might be linked to your phone. So when you're in the store, there is music in the background, say, and the music contains audio beacons that you can't hear, but that your phone registers such that the company can triangulate who you are with your phone and then your laptop, and they can uh, target you better and understand you better. It's like, it's, it's nonstop. And actually some of the most dangerous uh, details that I found, I decided not to publish because I decided that it was too easy for just anyone to abuse. So it's, it's really remarkable how, how vulnerable we are and how much information. So, among the inferences that get sent, for instance, when you go into a website, even before the website gets loaded, uh, hundreds of corporations who want to show you their ads get your information before you consent many times. And this is not information that is just like, you know, boring. It's things like your sexual orientation, your political tendencies, how much you earn, whether you have a mortgage, your diseases. It's really sensitive stuff. And these companies, even when they don't show you their ad, they get to keep this data. And then they sell it on to data brokers who then sell it on um, to anyone, essentially anyone who wants to buy it. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's impressive how much data can be collected. That's uh, some of those examples I, I thought of and considered. And I, I was looking at some retail uh, automation and, and yeah, the transformation of the retail space uh, not too long ago. And, and some of this came up in my research. But my question to you is, I mean, I know phones listen and it, it's so that it may find something for me. I don't have it enabled on mine. Who knows if it still listens or not. But the, the example you gave where the phone is listening to sounds to triangulate. My question to you is, are these purpose-built systems? Like the retail company is 
installing sensors and the sounds and and working with the phone companies and the apps on the companies to build this system? Or is it a bunch of stuff that just happens to be there's a sensor that's built that can do X, Y, and Z. And if you use this, you can put it into a system. So are these systems built purposely or are they a collection of things that can be packaged in any way? And, and how does that change? What, depending on what the answer is, how does that change how we deal with it? That's a really good question. I've actually never been asked that question before. And I think it's really good. Uh, it's both. So on the one hand, there are certain things about how digital tech works that just collect data. So for instance, when you go about your business, um, your phone is all, all the time trying to connect to the nearest cell phone tower, and then it's recording that. And that wasn't designed like that to collect data. That was designed as, as a way for the phone to, to work. Now, once the data economy is around, it gets used that way. And telecom companies could design it in different ways. So they could use like an onion routing system to shield you from um, that data being collected, and they don't. But other things like the audio beacons are designed exactly to um, collect certain kinds of data. And go going to your last question, if I may, about why should we care? Well, an ordinary citizen who is not the president and not anyone important, and let's say you know they don't have any enemies, um, they should care, or you should care if you don't want to be discriminated against if you're ever going to apply for a job or a loan or an apartment or any kind of opportunity. You should care because you don't want to uh, be the victim of, for instance, identity theft. This is a crime that has gone up uh, exponentially during the pandemic because there are more people using tech all the time. So somebody can steal your identity and commit frauds in your name. And there have been really tough cases even the small cases are very tough to handle because it's very hard to prove that it's not you committing those crimes. And you can spend so many thousands of dollars and years defending yourself for doing absolutely no wrong. You should care because there are people who want to extort you and expose you. So for instance, in some occasions, um, data from clinics, in one occasion I, that, I, that I remember, it was a cosmetic clinic. So there were uh, photos of nudes and passports and all kinds of sensitive information got leaked and hackers asked for um, Bitcoin in exchange for not exposing those people. In another more recent case, there was a, a psychiatric clinic in Finland that lost data and patients got extorted. Um, so if you're a human being and you know, you. You, you might think that you're super healthy, but maybe you have a disease that you don't know about, and maybe um, that's going to come back and, and haunt you in the future. And, and that's just if everything goes right politically. But if it doesn't go right politically, then we, we can be in real trouble. So one, um, one example is, of course, um, the Nazis, they use the data in the registries to find Jews and the, in the country that had most data on its citizens, which was the Netherlands, they found and killed about 73% of the Jewish population versus in France, where they had very little data on citizens for with, and that was a conscious decision for privacy reasons. And there they found 25% of the Jewish population. And a more recent example is, uh, for instance, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, you know, seven years ago was quite a safe, um, society to live in, politically pro progressive, and very 
tech savvy. So there was a, a lot, a lot of high tech all around. And then suddenly things get tense with China and that tech that used to work for citizens is working against them. So we see these images of protests and people bringing down cameras that have facial recognition. And then one of the problems was that um, more and more there were uh, el electronic ways of buying your ticket for the subway and not an actual person giving you the ticket. So there was, uh, huge, huge queues in the, in the very few places that you could buy your ticket um, with cash because people didn't want to buy their, their subway ticket with, uh, with credit cards. And, and that's a really good illustration of how if we build an architecture of surveillance, we don't know who's going to use it in the future. We might have a really good government now, but if we build that architecture and somebody else takes over, we're in serious trouble. So... If the audience says already positive message here, <laughs> I was going to say if the audience hasn't already turn off the podcast and and go hide somewhere and burn their phone or something, uh, what's the hope that we have? Right? I mean, you, I think somebody that there was a um, making a, a comment or review about your book. You actually quoted. Um, Scott McNeely, which is the, the founder of Sun Microsystem, and we had the pleasure to have on, on a show also, where it says, you know, you have zero privacy anyway, get over it. Uh, not really. So is that all gloom and dark and 1984 scenario here, George Orwell, or do you see a solution? Is there something we can do? Is it too late? Is there hope in your book? That's the question. There's a lot of hope. Actually, the second Yay! part is very optimistic. <laughs> um, and, and it's a kind of quirky kind of hope because I think our current landscape is so terrible that it's absolutely unsustainable. This is the Wild West and it, it, we just can't keep on that way. My hope is that we can change things before something really bad happens in the West. Because unfortunately, if it happens outside of the West. We don't learn from, from other people's mistakes, apparently. And I think we can do it. And already we're seeing huge steps. When I started working in this topic, people would really laugh at it. I mean, totally, they would, they would say like, you know, privacy is not a topic. It's something of the past. And today we can see that that, that was completely ridiculous. And not only do we have much more legislation uh, than say five, five years ago, the GDPR in Europe has really changed practices across the world because everybody wants to be in the European market. Now in the US, there's a lot of talk and debate about a federal privacy law. And I think that's coming. And even when it's not coming, we, you, you see states passing important laws like California, of course, but also Illinois with, with its laws against biometric data collection and so on. So I think we are learning and we were very new with this digital tech and, and companies didn't ask for this. So we didn't even know that data was being collected. Um, and also there are two things to keep in mind. One is that the majority of the analog life is not digitized. It might seem that everything is online, but when you think about it, for instance, our homes, our, our spaces, most of it is not digitized. Most people read books in paper, which is really interesting, I find. Um, most of our conversations, or, or a good chunk of them still happen offline. There's so much of the world, and most people, uh, most um, people buy offline still, even during the pandemic, which is also interesting. So we are very much in time. That's that's the first thing. And the second thing is that the most valuable data is the one that's being produced today. 
because personal data expires quite quickly. Your tastes change, you lose weight, you gain weight, you move countries, you um, seek a different job. It changes all the time. So don't think that just because there has been a lot of data collected on you, you know, you should just forget about it and it doesn't matter because the most important data is the data that is that you're being that you're producing or, or that's being produced right now. And that gives us a lot of hope to be able to change things. And then finally, we can delete data. And in some cases, like just um, a few days ago, there was a news that uh, Europol is being asked to delete a lot of data that it, that it didn't um, have lawfully. So we're seeing more and more that when lawsuits happen, it's not only that um, whoever um, made a mistake has to compensate the other party, but now we're seeing a request for data deletion. And I think that's uh, we're going to see more of that in the future. Very cool. And so I'm trying to trying to analyze what you said. How how much of that? A lot of that is government driven, policy driven. Uh, what's what's the role of the commercial space in that? And then, and then uh, I'm going to get to the user in a minute, but the role of the commercial world in that view of your, your hopeful uh, future. Yeah, one of, one of the nice things about writing a book is that you suddenly get in touch with all kinds of people that you wouldn't have met otherwise. And every day somebody writes to me saying that they've just opened a new privacy startup. Uh, and, you know, really these ideas are like flourishing so much. And it's an open space for companies because companies can use privacy as a competitive advantage. And we also, we're already seeing that with Apple. I'm not saying that Apple is perfect or a saint, far from it, uh, but it has some privacy features that have changed, cha have been a game changer and have um, upped the standards for other companies. So I think companies can play a very, very important role. And then finally, um, and I mean, it might be the final question, but finally, the, the, the users. So, I mean, especially at the end of the year, the beginning of the year, uh, there's a lot of blogs and, and other things that say, here's how you take control of your finances, your health. I've seen it for privacy. Um, but those lists can be lengthy, <laughs> cumbersome maybe even a little too technical for the non-technical person. What, what does the end user do, the everyday citizen do to begin to take back control for themselves? On the one hand, I don't want to give the impression that it's on, on the individual's shoulders and responsibility to change this, because I, I, I think that's unfair. And to a large extent, we are forced to use these, uh, these technologies. It's not like we can say, no, thanks, I don't want a job or I don't want an education. So I, you know, I'll, I'll opt out. Um, but at the same time, I want to, I, I would like people to realize how much power we have as, as individuals, because at the end of the day, many of these companies don't sell anything except data. <laughs> That's their product. So if you resist a bit, if you say no to cookies, if you go elsewhere, if you practice obfuscation, which means giving out false data when, you know, a company doesn't have a claim to your data. So for instance, if a company forces you to give an email, and um, well, give them a, a fake one or one that uh, you just produce for that. So uh, both Firefox and, and Apple allow users to have aliases. So, and, and also I want to, I want to like people to understand that 
you don't have to be perfect. It's not that, and you're going to fail <laughs> so many times, even if you try all the time to protect your privacy, it's just very hard. And there are many people who want it. And many times you're going to fail. But even when you fail, there is a lot of meaning in doing that. And, and it has an impact because it creates a paper trail. Many companies say, well, yeah, we did this horrible thing to our users, but it's absolutely fine because they were happy with it. They consented and they, uh, they said yes. And when you resist, when you say no, you create a paper trail. And if a regulator or a lawsuit happens in one year or two years, then that's going to show that we, we were actually not consenting. So basically, the main idea is to look for opportunities to protect your privacy and think twice. Don't, don't be cynical. We will change this and it can be changed. And the more we work towards it, the, 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 the sooner it will happen. And that means avoiding many, many unnecessary harms like discrimination and exploitation and so on. So among the things you can do, is make sure that the laptop and the phone you buy is not produced by a company that trades in data because they will always have a conflict of interest. Instead of using Google search, use DuckDuckGo. It's free and it works very well. Instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. Instead of using Gmail, use ProtonMail. And in general, for, for, for any service that you uh, search for, usually there's an alternative that is privacy friendly. So if you can use it, then use it. And protect other people's privacy. You know, don't share things that obviously uh, violate somebody's privacy. When don't, don't take pictures of people and upload them without asking for their permission and so on. Just just try your best without you know making your life too hard. That's good enough. I love it. That, that is good enough, and I am very impressed of how you've been able to summarize in a few tips something very complex because yep. as you're listening listing all these things i'm like hmm maybe we can and i know sean is thinking my way like we we, we didn't talk about misinformation fake news uh you did touch on the importance for democracy and all of these and and then there is the entire you know phishing and spamming and social engineering part so you know that i'm sure you probably mentioned in in the book as well but I love how you kept it really focused, really actionable. And I do hope that our listeners are getting at least the idea of, hey, maybe I shouldn't just use what everybody else is using, that there are alternatives. And I, and I love how, how you said that because convenience, it's a, it's a bad habit. I mean, it's good, but when you have convenience versus security and, you know, uh, you just can't wait. You just can't expect all to come without you having to make a step. And I think that that's important. And maybe, I don't know, maybe the first step is to get informed. Knowledge is power, as, as it is privacy. And reading this book, listening to, to this podcast, of course, or the other way around in this case. <laughs> um yeah, a wonderful conversation that can definitely go in a lot of different directions, Sean. We didn't I talk know. cybersecurity. What's wrong with yes, you? I know. I'm, I'm holding that for a different one. Maybe uh, Chris <laughs> would, be, would be kind enough to join us again. I, I think the, I want to make one, one more point because, Chris, you mentioned that the data that we're creating today is the data that matters most. And as you're describing the alternatives, they're, they're fantastic uh, alternatives to look at things we would normally use versus those that, that maybe respect us a little more. Um, 
and I guess the, the point I wanted to make is if you're starting something new, pause for one moment and understand what the options are so you can select an alternative to one of the more mainstream that maybe not uh, not as ethical <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then over time, maybe you can you can go back and, and refresh some of the legacy stuff that you may have gotten locked into 10 years ago because it was a free email service or what have you. But I think w- there are so many things Air new that free. we're doing. Cool. Exactly. Free email. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, ju- it just knows that your, uh, your flight's about to leave in six hours <laughs> on your way to this destination where you're going to be re- staying yep. at this hotel. <laughs> no, nothing is free. That lovely email. Yeah. yeah. Now, so... Fabulous conversation. I echo what Marco said. And uh, Chris, it was a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on the book. Uh, Hopefully everybody grabs a copy, reads it, thinks, takes some action, shares it. (laughs) Because I think this is a societal thing, not an individual thing, as you pointed out. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I'd love to continue talking about cybersecurity because there are a lot of connections. And regarding what Marco said, yeah, one of my frustrations when reading a lot of tech books is that they kind of painted a concerning picture, a lot of anecdotes that you can see are problematic, but they didn't analyze what is the source of it, like what is the main problem? And I think when when we realize that the business model and that privacy are the source, or the loss of privacy is the source of many, even most of our problems with tech, it really... Uh, is really enlightening. I think it's, it's kind of insightful as to not only how we got here, but also how do we get out of here. So thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about this. Well, thank you, everyone. Yes. Uh, notes, links, everything will be in the podcast notes. Stay with us. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Let's keep redefi- redefining society, Marco. Stay private. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.